So, Alastair, is this right pronounced? Because I only know you from, you know, your handle, Nauticode. So, uh, Alastair, is the right pronunciation? Um, yeah, it's close, it's close enough. Um, people, people tend to pronounce my name um, lots of different ways, so I don't really worry as long as it's close enough. Yeah, and, and what, what will be your pronunciation? Um, I'd usually say Alastair. Alastair? Um, Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been told that I pronounce it incorrectly. Um oh. I like to say I'd like to say that how I pronounce it is correct, no matter how other people would like to pronounce it. How can um, it be that you are pronouncing your own name incorrectly? So so my name is actually Scott Scottish. Um it's it's Gaelic originally and I don't speak that language and I didn't grow up in Scotland. Ah. So uh, that would be how I, I pronounce it the way I think it should be pronounced reading it, as opposed to necessarily how it would be pronounced in Scotland. Okay, now I got you. Perfect. So regardless, what was your first computer? So this is the uh, now the the questions to all answers on my podcast. Oh, first computer. So um, I guess it depends on whether you mean the first computer I had access to or the first computer I actually owned. Um, the the first computer I had access to uh, would have been a BBC B Micro um, at school. Mm-hmm. Um, that that's probably not something that's uh, avail- been available outside of the UK, but it it was kind of my first experience. And we played a game at school called Granny's Garden, um, okay. which I used to love doing. And and we, but we weren't allowed to play it very often because there was one computer in the entire school. Um, the my my brothers had a Commodore sixty four, but I wasn't really allowed to play it because I was too young. And um, my dad got a two eight six PC, um, but that wasn't mine. So my first one, I think, was a four eight six. Okay, and this at at school. So th- was it something special to you, or was just you know another device? So do you remember you the first time? It you was saw- very much special. Okay, so it was uh- very. Why? So you, yeah. you saw the computer and, and why you were so excited about? So I don't know if I would say I was excited, but there was like one computer for the entire school. Okay. Um, and that was kind of that was kind of why it was special and different and unusual. And we didn't have them at, at, at home. Um, and uh, that so so it, it was a special it was it was kind of a special treat if you got to allow time on the computer. Okay. Um, and you know that was that was kind of when I was in I guess you know in the UK we would we it was kind of junior school. By the time I got to, um, got to you know uh, secondary secondary education, um, they started having Archimedes computers in schools. Archimedes, um, never heard about uh, that. Oh uh, yeah, it was it was an it was a it was it was an it was actually really nice. It had a proper kind of windowing system. Uh, it was based on a RISC processor. Um, it was by a company called Acorn in the UK, and that was very common in education. Mm-hmm. And that one actually had BASIC, and that was the first one that was realistically programmable. So um, when I was in um, when I was in school, we tried some very kind of basic programming in this BASIC. And um, the the BBC Micro had had that ability, but it didn't it didn't really have very good support for writing things to disk, or at least I never worked out how to save any programs. So the programs were necessarily much more simple. Okay. And uh, you were forced to program or you wanted to program? 
Gently. I, I wanted G to program. Okay. So why that? So how old were you back then? So I would have been in the kind of like 14 to 16 age group when I first wanted to program. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I don't, I don't really know if I can remember why, um, uh, other than I wanted to, you know, some of the people I, I, I knew at school could program and they could make the computers do things. And I wanted to be able to make the computers do those things too. So I guess it was kind of just a me too thing. Okay. Because it's always interesting to um, me, you know, how, how, so, why or how someone got an idea to program because it's not obvious, you know, that, and you also played games. Yeah. Oh yeah. I, I played games. Um, I remember, I think, I think the first game I pr played was SimCity 2000. Hmm. Um, and that was on the 286 and that, 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 that computer had two megabytes of RAM and, um, I feel making myself feel old now. And I spent a lot of time building a boot disk so I could actually play it because it, it, it wouldn't play, um, without me freeing up enough space. Um, and I was quite proud of that. That was kind of my first big PC task. Um, and then I remember I wanted to get X-Wing. Um, which was a LucasArts um, flight simulator exactly. um, for mm -hmm. Christmas. And it, that needed a sound card. So my parents bought a sound card for the 286. Sound Blaster. And that was a Creative Lab sound card. So far, so you started with at, at school because there was one computer you were a little bit excited about that because it was real resource, right? Then you saw some someone programming, doing things with computer. So you started to hack a little bit basic, and this was your start with the 286, right? This was the first machine you started serious programming on it? Yeah. Okay. And what, what was your first application you wrote, or your first Hello World, or whatever it was? So the first thing that I, um, the first thing I probably remember writing was um, a program that could basically just display an image and full screen on the Archimedes. Okay. And um, basically there was this, You know, it was a really simple. It was like a two or three line basic program on the type form of basic they had. And um, it, it was it was just because everyone wanted to play tricks on each other by taking a screenshot of the desktop and then displaying it. And everyone, everyone click on the icons wondering, why isn't that program loading? Uh, so it was very juvenile, really. Yeah, but this is actually a great trick. So uh, <laughs> I, I found it by accident with my uh, with my iPhone, where it happened by accident, you know. <laughs> But um, yeah, this is all, I would say intelligent trick, right? So how, how old were you? Fourteen years old. I think it was fourteen. But I mean, it it's it, the 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 Archimedes made it very simple to take screenshots, and it made it very simple to from basic to display that on screen. Okay. So. It wasn't particularly complicated. I mean, you, you didn't really even need to know ifs or, you know, conditionals or looping or things like that to get it to work. But was um, it more like, uh, you know, Archimedes Hello World to display a picture as a something like this, right? Yes. Ah, okay, because uh, on my computer it wouldn't be possible. So I had, so I had a ZX Spectrum Sinclair and this would just displaying yeah. an image it was like mission impossible i think <laughs> yeah and and in fact um you know i went from the archimedes and then i went to college in the uk to do um a levels and i did a computing a level and there we were on um uh intel machines we're running windows and we were introduced to quick basic uh and it didn't have any good graphics capabilities at all so i went from an environment where it was like really easy to do those things to you know it was really difficult and i remember um one of one of the people um in my 
class built a, a, a kind of an online chat thing. We we got into a bit of trouble because it it wasn't supposed to work, but it it, it did. And um, we wanted to have scrolling, and I wrote the code that did the scrolling, and it was just really complicated just to show uh scrolling text and then be able to scroll up and down within the text is the history it was just it was not at all simple uh, of course you know if you do something like visual basic it was really trivial to put you know just append the text into a into a window but we didn't have any of that available to us yeah i can imagine it's just the, the same you know if you would try to do this in, in 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 the web right now it would like to scroll and and load you know something from a table is also complicated somehow so And uh, was it your first more serious application? I so I, it probably was. Yeah, I, I I can't really remember too much details about what I did in my A levels because um, it was quite a long time ago. Why I'm asking um, this? Yeah, why yeah, why why you started you know uh, the the computer science uh, study? Because um, you did a little bit of work with Basic and um, and with Archimedes, and you were so excited about so that you wanted to study that, or what's the story behind? Yeah, so so it was interesting because my my parents, I think they they had they had a you know as, as all parents they they kind of think about what do they want for their children in their best uh, what's best for their children, and they tend to think in terms of uh, what what's what is a good thing for uh, in 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 the world that they they kind of lived and grew grew up in, and I wanted to go and work with something that was more a little bit more emerging. Um, Uh, but you know, I'm not saying they weren't supportive, but I, I know that they were kind of like, well, maybe you should think about doing history and 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 they, and physics. That mm -hmm. might be a bit more applicable, and then you could make a decision later on. I think they were a little bit concerned that I wanted to go into this industry, and they weren't sure that it would pay well, and it would be a good kind of career choice. But my my older brother, he 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 was in the he he's quite a bit older than me. Mm -hmm. And he was in the video game industry, so he could it completely understood the value of programming, mm -hmm. and he was really encouraging to me to basically do A levels and um, go on to do a um, computer science degree. Um, whereas my parents, I think, had a little bit more had to be brought round to it. And you know, part of that was my uh my 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 father did some time working in a programming for the UK government and he really didn't like it okay and uh, and i think that probably didn't help either because he was like well this is what programming was like when i, I was forced to do it and it sucked and there's got to be better things for you to spend your time on yeah i uh i attended once a conference in germany and this was like uh I did a Java thing, but uh, the conference was a joint conference with uh, C people. No, they were uh, Delphi folks, and there were some uh, oh, Delf wow. all, all Delphi programmers with uh, C knowledge. And uh, one guy after the show, so we met all together just for a dinner or something, and he told me he really hates programming because it is, uh, it, and and he has. Uh, He he will never you know he has uh, kids but he will not allow uh, the kids to program because it's terrible. It's like I really like it, but he was not he was really hated that. Yeah. And um, your uh, your uh, father was a programmer. Your brother is programmer, but your parents saw that you actually my brother's not my brother's not a programmer. My brother is a um, game designer. Ah, okay. And what uh, a game designer designs is is like for the assets. 
like you know these uh, uh, artistic skills or what does game designer what doesn't well mean? so i yeah this is a this is this would be a better question to ask him because he's his current job title is creative director okay um and he current he works for uh riot games and uh, they actually just today they they, they announced um the the game he's been working on which is going to be called something uh, Val Valorant I think okay. that's how you pronounce it okay and uh, so his his job title is creative director but because I'm not in a creative kind of area I, I don't necessarily have a huge understanding of what exactly is a creative director does he he's very much a, a he's very he's very much understands and appreciates the value of good software engineers though because he's always been working on either the video game production side or the kind of the kind of more creative design side of, of the project. Um, but it's the engineers that turn the vision into reality. And he has a very high opinion of, uh, of a good engineer hey, cool. as a result. So you have a nice brother and, uh, and then, yeah, this was your way to study programming. And, and in one point of time, you, You you like the programming or you regret that during the study? I don't think I'd regretted. Well, actually, that's not true. I I mostly I didn't regret going because I did a computer science degree, which has a lot of programming in it, but it isn't really uh, a programming degree. And I would say I enjoyed almost everything I did except Prologue, okay. and I, I I really could not get on with Prologue and the way Prologue works and the way it forces you to think. Um, I guess, in a sense, I'm much more procedural in the way I think. Um, I understand um, expressing problems in terms of do these series of steps, mm -hmm. um, and Prologue doesn't expect you to do that. And I just found it a bit, a bit of a, uh, a bit of a break. It's even weirder than functional programming. So, um, Prologue is a little bit like. Uh, are you aware of the rules from from uh, the Red Hat folks, like the rule engine, where you Put oh yes, facts in, I, I, in, in a memory, and then you expect that they will resolve. Is something like this? Um, I, I, I can't even remember. It's been such a long time <laughs> okay. since I looked at okay. it. I, I don't think I, I. I remember them telling him you like you're much. It's much more along the lines of it, it less saying this is what you need to do to solve the problem, and more trying to define the constraints. But yeah, I, exactly. I, honestly. Mm -hmm. I just remember the problem being the the programming language being so different from anything that I also had to work on, and I did not enjoy it. Okay. Um, and uh, and you had uh, already experiences with other languages, or was Prologue your first language after Basic? Oh no 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 we we got taught C. Um, okay. As our first language at university. Okay. And uh, there was actually uh, we were taught functional C. Okay. Um. And, and I can't honestly. That's probably the last time I ever did any C functional C programming. Um, was was it like that Objective C? So like Objective C? Something? No, 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 no. It was literally C, but using C to write in a functional style. Yeah, this is interesting, actually. Uh, Uh, okay, what you made me curious about the prologue. So after the show, I would do some research how it looks like because I'm really curious <laughs> how yeah, it can look. And, you know, and and we did we did. You know, so it was kind of like the first year at university, it was C, it was Lisp. Um, I think Prologue might have been my second year rather than my first. Um, 
But it was kind of interesting because when I first went to university, the university had decided the the following year's intake would be taught Java as the primary teaching language, mm-hmm. whereas in my year it was supposed to be C and C plus oh. plus. But uh, because they'd made the decision, uh, quite a few of the people had all started adapting the material to focus on Java. So I actually think I came out of the first year really understanding Java but not so much C and C. And I did no C++ at all. Okay. Um, and then in the second year, they were like, oh, you all know C++ because you were taught it last year. And everyone was like, no, we know Java because we were taught Java as the object-oriented language. And which Java version was it? Do you remember? Well, it, it, was, it, was, uh, it was before Java 2 was a thing. Okay. So you, are, so you are one of the, you know, old programmers, Java programmers. You started with JDK 1.1 as, as I started. <sighs> Or one zero even. I, I think I so I started my first Java program would have been in probably nineteen ninety nine. Okay, so it's probably around so twenty yeah one one twenty one years. Okay, perfect. And you enjoyed Java from from the beginning, from the start, or 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 not? So, what was your opinion about Java back then? I I liked Java for a couple of reasons. I liked the fact that you didn't have to deal with pointers. Okay. I, I have this really visceral dislike for pointers in uh, pointers. And I really don't like in C++ the way it seems confused about pointers and references and, and how they work together. Or at least at the time, it didn't, you know, it seems like sometimes I should use a pointer the reference and sometimes I should use the dot operator. And it wasn't entirely clear to me the rhyme or reason behind it. Same here. Um, but but then, but then I try... Yeah, this was the same here in my case. I tried to understand this, how it actually works. And then I became, you know, the pointer master. So what I remember, I could, uh, could is nothing special, but what I did is back then is I de- somehow dereference a pointer and I could look in the memory and cast to something else. So it's crazy stuff. And I enjoyed pointers a lot because, you know, I got the pointers. But <laughs> it was just, uh, I, I play with the pointers a lot. And then uh, someone mentioned, you know, there is a true object-oriented language on the horizon. It's called Oak. It's like, Oak, what is it? And I take a look on it, and then I never saw pointers again. So a similar story to yours. Yeah, and I like the, I like the fact that Java meant you didn't need to worry about memory dereferencing because uh, that was something, you know, I, I found quite difficult to, to have rigor around making sure that you um, both allocated but then deallocated memory. Yeah, uh, to but, not have memory leaks. But this was more like no pragmatic, pragmatic how to call it pragmatic uh, point of view to Java. There was something more. We said, okay, Java is really great. Or and, and and even back then, the the it was it was much easier with Java to do do do, do some of the data structures because they were kind of built into the yeah. into the language as opposed to being expanded. So we had a whole load of language. Uh, courses in computer science about you know data structures and algorithms for operating on data structures and the nice thing about java was i you know i could ignore all of that stuff and i could just because you know i needed a list of something i didn't need to know how to build a list and how to manage a list there was something built into the language um mm-hmm. so that 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 i found really nice so, so then you stick with java until end of the university? No, we, we still had to learn a variety of different languages. So, um, I, you know, there was a couple of courses which were heavily on Lisp. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I would say predominantly, um, predominantly it was Java. And 
I also went to, I got an internship at IBM in the UK mm-hmm. um, for, for the summers during university. And I was on a Java team um, oh. there. So I, I, I kind of did Java in the summers as well. Although it, it didn't stop me in my second year. I, I went in and I couldn't work out what my program wasn't running. And I went in to ask the people in the, the help desk if they could take a look and they looked at it and I'd forgotten to put void. I, I tried writing int main rather than void main or something ridiculous mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. And I was looking at it thinking, I've just been doing Java all summer and I come back and the first thing I do is forget something that basic. <laughs> yeah, because you didn't, you did probably you did something on the server and you didn't, you know, uh, have to write public static void main, right? <laughs> uh, I actually I no, I what I did spend most of my time doing was writing unit tests for code and all of the unit tests were kicked off by a main method. But you're right. I mean, once you've got your main method, um almost everything is uh everything after that is mm-hmm. is kind of not main method. So you've wrote a unit test without J unit, right? Yes. This was before J unit. Well, actually, I don't know if it was before JUnit, but it was before JUnit was a, a big thing. Yeah. And it was before people really did automated automated testing. Um, so you would write unit tests and you'd run them and then mm, that was it. Yeah. Um, if anyone else, you know, it, we I checked them into version control system and I, I'm pretty certain that it won't run um, after I left the internship, uh, or at least not reliably, because I know somebody, when, I'm, so when I joined IBM in my graduate year, somebody was asking me questions about these tests I'd written as an intern. Okay. And eventually, like several years later, he admitted to me he had just gone and deleted all of the tests. Yeah. This is um, what uh, usually happens. If the tests are read, you have to delete them, right? <laughs> right. And, you know, it, I think I think it was the, you know, they, they were, it's, I don't think that they were never run necessarily, but they weren't run frequently enough. Yeah. And um, nobody really understood how they worked. And I didn't really understand how they worked three years later. Um, <laughs> what, what you tested, actually, so, so, during your end? What, what was so, it? What, what do you had to test? Oh, I don't know if I want, I don't know if I want to admit that. Um, I, I was writing unit tests for the um, IBM MQ JMS clients, the first cool. release. Yeah, this, um, is, this is great. And, and, and they, you know, it was, it was, the, there was a whole bunch of kind of, proper testing done afterwards which is probably why those ones were less mm-hmm. but yeah my my first internship i felt like i was delivering value yeah it was extremely value extreme value because um uh, i used the mq client for java before and then this ibm gms for uh, for insurance company so probably i got you know the very first version of ibm uh, gms api tested by you <laughs> I, I i tested it I, i i didn't actually write any code in it but i tested it and i found bugs So, yeah. you know, the tests were valuable because I wrote up some bugs. But what you tested was not the API, obviously, rather than the the adapter implementation behind, right? Because uh, there was a glue code between a JMS API and the actual IBM client, right? Right. So I was writing tests for the JMS interface, in the JMS implementation on the rest of the MQ client yeah. for Java. And you enjoyed that? You enjoyed that task? Um, I, I, I enjoyed it. Um, I remember having quite a bit of free time. So um, there were a ho- there were a couple of people that I knew from um, university who were on an internship. And, um, you know, I remember having a good time, all, all of us doing the internship at the same time. Um, so, yeah, um, I, I'm sure that I could have 
provided more more value and more utility in the in the three months I was there. But I, I did mean, enjoy it. It's a, it's a, I mean, you provided value as a student. Perfect job, I would say. Uh, I mean, you know. And um, what you did after the university? You just immediately joined IBM. Yeah. So like I um after after the second internship, they offered me a job. And I was like, great, I don't need to go on the job hunt now. So on the, the, the second internship, you still you tested, uh, you expanded your tests again? Was it your just extension? So mm -hmm. it was, yeah, so the first internship, the first summer I wrote unit tests. And the second one, I was in the, the FVT team, again, for the JMS client for Java. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I, I worked on quite a lot of tests there. I can't remember any of the details, but the test lead at the time um, seemed happy with what I did. So, and so, I mean, so then at university, probably nothing more exciting happened. And then you joined IBM, right? So I think you, you, there was nothing revolutionary what you did on the university from Java perspective. I, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, okay. it's kind of like long enough ago that, to be honest, I don't know how much I can really remember in detail. Yeah, sure. Um, but um, and IBM. So you started at IBM. And um, yeah. as what? As a JMS expert? Or no, expert? no, no, I, 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 well, so I, I ended up getting hired in the Webster application server wow. uh, product mm -hmm. organization into the development team. And they were at the time integrating JMS into Webster application server. Okay. And I kind of joined at the kind of beginning of WebSphere version five. Mm -hmm. Um, which was the version where WebSphere got uh, first got a, a JMS implementation as well as support for uh, the API. What you did then? So I was, we have you know, fifty you... interfaces around. I would say JMS is the main interfaces are are clear. You got already the impl working implementation from uh, WebCMQ or uh, MQ series back then. And there was the yep. adaptive work to do and probably GNDI, you know, GNDI, thread pools integration. Yep. This is probably the hard stuff and stress testing and stuff like that, right? Yeah, but I, I wasn't really doing any of that um, because there was a team of there was a team of people doing the work who had, you know, real experience. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I came in kind of, I wouldn't say halfway through, but it was kind of partway through a project. So um, I, I wrote, you know, Uh, one of my colleagues teases me because um, uh, one of the things that I did was wrote samples. Uh, I wrote product samples. Okay. And uh, they teased me that I was the samples guy for the team. Okay. Um, and I did, you know, I did bring up, um, I and I did a little bit of development here and there. But I, I would say most of the first year in, in it, I, I was... I, I wasn't really doing much in the way of real programming uh, and I was still kind of finding my feet. So I think probably the first um, year I was in IBM, um, I, it was most of my time was trying to work out what on earth it meant to be in the world of work and uh, in a in a company like IBM and less actually writing code. Uh, I joked at one point that I spent more time when I first uh, started writing Perl code than Java. Um, Mm -hmm. Although I can't remember why I was writing so much Perl code, so probably some you know regular expression stuff, I would assume. And um, well, the, oh, that was it. That one of the things that our team had is we had a, a wiki, and ah. it was one of the kind of early wikis, and it was written in Perl. 
Mm-hmm. And I, I, I made some ch- changes and improvements to the Perl wiki based on what we needed. Okay. And I, I'm fairly certain that the, the Perl code was um, open sourced. Um, but I didn't have, I didn't worry about any of that because we weren't shipping it. Uh, it was just an internal tool. Um, and that, that I spent some time, uh, doing that. And, uh, but now you are a WebSphere architect. So, um, yes. this is a big deal. So what happened between, you know, ha- hacking Perl and becoming a WebSphere architect? So what, what you did, you, you stick with JMS the whole, the entire time? Uh, no. So I, so the, the first, the first really WebSphere 5 had MQ series as its JMS implementation. Mm-hmm. Um, but that ran MQ series as kind of a cut down sidecar. And in the next version, version six, they wanted to re-implement it, re-implement a Java based JMS in, so, solution. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, they basically stole as many people from around the lab as had any understanding of WebSphere and JMS to actually start building it. And I was one of the later people being picked on. Um, uh, but I didn't actually work on JMS. Um, what I worked on was a, a capability that really got, rem- it's not been removed, but it, nobody uses it called mediation. And the idea behind the mediation was you would basically stick a piece of logic on a queue. And when a message gets put on a queue before anyone could see it and read it, it would run this code in order to make changes. So the idea was if you needed to do any, um, change to the message between the consumer producer and the consumer, this mediation code would run. Okay. Um, and that, that was kind of interesting because it was basically writing a container mm-hmm. and, um, you know, all of the problems that, you know, EJBs have to solve, we would, we had to solve. And it, it was almost, al- almost, just... almost serverless, right? Like, uh, the, something is coming in the queue and, and your, your mediator has to wake up, do something and then can go to sleep again. Right. Right. Although it's running inside of the, inside of the application server. So Mm -hmm. I I don't know how serverless it really is, but then you could probably say that about most serverless approaches. Yeah, of course. Um, It was very, it was very much event driven. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. And, and I think, you know, if I remember correctly, we basically ended up finding a way of reusing the EJB container for um, a significant amount of the container processing. It, it, It was still kind of, it was, it was, it's JMS in the comfort zone area, but it was not JMS in, in, in the, I was starting to learn about how, how people write code themselves. You know, I, I'd like to be able to say that I had a very strong opinion on where my career was going and what I was, um, uh, what I was going to do. Mm-hmm. But I, I think real, realistically, it was a little bit more, um, I was lucky and I got opportunities given to me at various points. There was uh, one of the versions of WebSphere. We decided to rebuild WebSphere on top of OSGI. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was asked to work out how to get the JMS implementation we had running in that environment. And that was really interesting because it got me um, experience of a huge range of the runtime. Um, which I think has, um, been very, um, useful, um, since. So, um, you know, I had to work, I had to go and look at how the, the transports work, the kind of HTTP, um, the, the messaging protocols, make sure that they could all work. And, uh, and, and it just meant I had a, had to go and just 
get stuck in into random parts of the code base that I really had no experience in. And it kind of taught me to not be scared um, of, of other people's code because, you know, I, I know some, some people get very strong sense of ownership over mm-hmm. pieces of code. And um, it, it just, you know, it just taught me that I, you know, you can't have, you can't have that and you can't be fit or as worried about people's ownership. If something needs to be done and you're the, the best person to make it happen, then that's just what needs to happen. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and, and I yeah. think, uh, you know, making something to work on OSGI is, is quite an adventure, right? <laughs> I can imagine with the uh, it was, and, class loading and, uh, and, issues probably and, uh, you know, uh, the the uh, the order how the services have to start i mean this is a huge project i mean so some of that some of that we had to deal with anyway and um, and you know one of the things one of the best things about osgi is its service model mm-hmm. and we didn't really make use of the service model at all in in that project mm-hmm. um it was to be honest mostly using the eclipse extension registry format mm-hmm. uh as a way of hooking things together so a lot of the ordering constraints that happen around startup and service orchestration in OSGI weren't, weren't really there. That was one thing. When we did Liberty, that was one thing that we really learned from what we had done with traditional WebSphere. We had learned a lot more over the times, and we, we very much tried to make sure it was using services and OSGI best practices that we had learned about um yeah this is uh, i had already a chat with uh erin schnabel a conversation and uh, uh and, and like open liberty is built from ground up on you know osgi primitives and it works great i mean i use uh, yeah. open liberty a lot and uh you can even partially you know load or unload bundles or uh or features and it just works yeah and you know i we we kind of wanted to do a lot of that with traditional web sphere but we had this we wanted to, as much as possible, not not risk breaking anyone's existing applications. And that really hamstrung some of the things that we were able to do with Liberty, because with Liberty, we were able to make some strategic kind of decisions that made compatibility less complete, but overall provided a much better uh, experience. So, for example, with, with uh, traditional WebSphere, uh, before OSGI, pretty much every application server class was visible to applications. Mm-hmm. So if we used a piece of open source, it was visible to applications. And when we did OSGI, we wanted to preserve that because somebody might be using that open source HTTP client that we happen to have used for our needs. Mm-hmm. And with Liberty, we took, you know, one of the things we said is that caused that, that kind of laissez-faire attitude makes things more difficult. And we actually kind of, had a much better control over what was considered our externals mm-hmm. and really hit, used OSGI to hide those from the application layer. Mm-hmm. Uh, how much, how long after your mediator project, Open Liberty came out? So it's like, you know, years or was around the corner? Oh, no, it was kind of years. So uh, I started at IBM in 2001 and I think Liberty, well, if you ask Erin, she has a slightly different timeline for me because she was worked on a precursor project to Liberty, okay. and I didn't really start until Liberty. So I, I consider the Liberty project really starting in about 2010. Okay. And the mediator, um, think? When was it, 2003? Yeah, it was about 2003. Okay, and what you did then? So after the mediator, so you still stick that, with messaging? That was and the website? first. Okay. Yeah, so that the first thing was the, um, the first thing was, 
the first phase of doing OSGI in in WebSphere application server. So that took a, a while. And then I was put in charge of security. Well, it was kind of simultaneous. So I was doing componentization and security, but the componentization thing was the, the OSGIification was like a, a year, um, a, a release and the security thing lasted a few. So I was doing security and, um, for, for the messaging, for, uh, support. Um, and, um, after, after that, I, uh, the, we had, there was this period where IBM was very interested in enterprise OSGI, which was how to bring um, you know, the, the Java EE programming models, um, but using OSGI modularity. And I was the development lead for that project in Webster application server. And that's what I was doing immediately before Liberty. Okay. So why Liberty started is like, because you saw that, uh, you cannot just provide the features for the WebSphere classic without breaking existing code base or, 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 or being, you know, because I, what I imagine is on the website classic, lots of, lots of, uh, serious applications are running. And if you would go, you know, the full OSGI route, you could break things. So this is why, why open Liberty started. So Liberty kind of started for a couple of reasons. Um, I, you know, in a sense, I think we had backed ourselves into a kind of, uh, a corner with what we could do. Exactly. with the traditional code base in terms of meeting some key re key requirements um and you know we we tried um uh we tried to work out how to deliver those on on the traditional runtime and i don't think i think basically we we weren't you know we weren't smart enough to solve the problem and preserve backward compatibility so that was, you know, that, that was when we said, well, let, what happens if we, we try, try and start from scratch? And, you know, we had a couple of different attempts, uh, solving the requirements before we came up with the, the Liberty one. And each one was successively more and more like Liberty. So, um, you know, one of the key things that, that we wanted was something that was a very, was like fastest to start up. Mm -hmm. with a, a less of a memory footprint mm -hmm. um that uh, and also people you know back when we were starting even that you know it's it's easy to be dismissive when you're looking back about 10 years people um were much looking for even back then i i, I just want the amount of runtime that's needed for my application and no more yeah um the, the kind of just enough application server context. I think that's, that might be something I picked up from you. And we, at the time we talked about fit for purpose. Um, okay. And, um, and, and know, I remember we had an argument somewhere on, on email. I don't know about you were about for modularization. And I said, why are you doing this? Is this small enough? You remember that? I don't, I don't know. This is how, how I bumped into you. And then I, I tried to track you down, and this, I found their naughty code on, on Twitter. And uh, we had a mail conversation about, I don't know in which context, about, you know, this, uh, uh, what, you, what you said right now, you know, build your own runtime, which fit your purpose. And, and my, my point was, uh, why? If it's small enough, you know, then I will always take the entire thing. So we had an argument. And then I uh, asked Aaron about you, so who are you? Because you are really, really you know, explicit with this uh, with the idea so remember the conversation or, or mailing conversation with me 
I, I, I don't remember it in detail, but it seems like the kind of discussion I, I've been involved in. Uh, cause I, I've had a similar, I've seen, I've, you know, I've seen other people being like, well, if everything is fast enough, then it doesn't matter. And I agree, right? If everything is fast enough, it doesn't matter. The problem is that if, it's, there's a there's kind of a big if the more code you're pulling in the more function you're pulling in the the the, the harder it is to ensure that you have that level of um, approach and you know it, annotation scanning of um, code at runtime is ex, you know it's not cheap um, and if you're really bad at it you annotation scan multiple times. Um, so JAXWS, JAXRS, Serbler, EJB, all of them are doing their own kind of annotation scanning independently. And, you know, obviously, if I describe it that way, it sounds like that's a really stupid way to do it, except that's that's very common. Yeah. Um, but uh, but I, the, my point was always like, if, uh, let's say, if, let's say Quarkus, we have a, a, a completely different example. In Quarkus, I have, you know, to do over and over again, I have to add all my micro profiles, more write dependencies, then I add my Hibernate ORM. The first thing I did, I created a, a archetype which added everything I possibly would yeah. like to have. And then I, if it's too big, I would just remove the dependencies or refactor okay. the code. But for me, it's productivity or convenience over runtime memory consumption. You know, and, and now, now, now I think remember the context so um i i was i i i was looking at getting our maven tools to generate the right server uh features exactly. required to enable just enough and the discussion was about should you just have the dependency on everything in java ee or should you be explicitly listing the java ee specifications that you exactly. want exactly and and I think I think I would express it slightly differently um, from a if it's fast enough, why would I care? Uh, I, I would view it as being um, you, you don't want to have to care, but you want to get the best performance throughput. So what what would be and an ideal thing is that in from a from the perspective of a developer, you just say this is the API I want to use, and if you use a subset. We only provision in the runtime the subset that you uh, that you need, rather than saying everything. I think the the, the, um, the op optimum would be we would just have you know one API, so one dependency in Maven, like Jakarta Eight, let's say, yes. or MicroProfile, and then uh, what I use I'm yeah. using, and then the runtime. For instance, if I don't use JPA, the runtime wouldn't put would not put JPA, and but I don't have you know to yeah. bother with it because at the beginning of the project. The worst idea what I saw was the, I think it was the Whitefly Swarm, where I was asked, would you like to have JaxRS with transaction or JaxRS without transaction or JSONB? And at the beginning of the projects, I, I, I really don't like, you know, to fiddle with the website to add all the APIs because I know I will probably end up having 80% anyway in, in any reasonable project. So... For me, yeah. it's the you know, Ruby on Rails like you know experience. So back then, it's almost that. But back then, you know, you just start hacking and and it's done. I don't have to care about all the dependencies. Yeah. And there's always and, it should be possible. So don't get me wrong. So if you if you yeah. need you know this micro optimizations, you should be able to do this. But in you no know, in all my project, I always went with the full server. So I use always 
Payara full, white flag full, open liberty. I added to open liberty Jakarta E8. That's the first thing I did. And micro profile, the only thing what what I didn't like was the um dependency on SSL and and Corba, which I never because this caused some startup slowdown. So this was issue I really had. But if this were not there, it would be just perfect. So the size was never an issue. And I think I have come on discussion not only with you, but also had with you know the Sun people building containers because they yeah. try to optimize from the runtime perspective. And I'm just a user developer, and for me, convenience yeah. is the king. But I think, and, and in fact, yeah, and in fact, the in the ca- in the case of the the, the changes I had been play, playing around with in our Maven tools, I actually ended up not making them based on your feedback. Uh, oh, because. Yeah, so so I, I had been basically saying if if somebody has depended on JaxRS, then I'll enable the JaxRS feature. And I had a list of all of the different various alternative JaxRS API dependencies in Maven Central um, to do the mapping. And, you know, it worked. But uh, as you said, it, um, you know, from a developer perspective, you, you know, it's just so much nicer to be able to say you want J- Java EE seven or java e8 or jakarta e8 and not worry about that level of detail when you're defining your your maven plugin because as soon as you want to add something else you've got to go back to your maven palm and you've got to make changes and then you've got to get your ide to sync up and make that available and i i basically said well if i'm going to map java e8 to the full feature of everything i'm not providing the kind of value i want to provide so i ended up shelving it now We've had conversations in in the development team like multiple times since then about how to um, bring that experience back, but do it in a more developer-friendly way so we don't end up requiring a developer to do unnatural things just because they want to get just enough runtime. Mm-hmm. And um, But uh, the approach you did is very important for marketing, actually. So the, the memory stuff is usually never an issue. So um, I was... Uh, I, just almost in every session or or Java user group where uh, where I'm attending and asking developers about you know the memory consumption and and then I ask the question now how much would you cost let's say if your microservice becomes twice as big in RAM and it's in the clouds and um, people who they 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 think it will be extremely expensive and uh, and uh, sometimes I get your real answers and this is like you know. Is in one point was like fifty euros a month. It's like it doesn't matter, you know. If you if you are productive, and uh, and you know, the 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 POM is faster, or Maven is faster, and the POM is uh, easier to understand, and there are no plugins involved, then you know fifty euros a month is um, is uh, is is not an issue. But if you are Netflix and you have you know hundred of thousand of such just microservices, then you have an issue. And uh, so what I do right now, I proactively show, you know, Quarkus, Wildslide, or Open Liberty, measure the performance and say, look, this is what is, is empty and this is what is full and this memory we can save. And then this discussion stops and we can fully focus on on, on the real problem. Yeah, I, 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 and I, I think I'm kind of, different people have different interests for different reasons. Yeah. Um, and, you know, to be honest, um, I... I, it used to be when we started Liberty, everyone, it, for, for everyone I know, it was like memory footprint, startup time, those are really important. And then, and then Atom came out and Slack came out. And yeah. um, what I realized, what I realized and what the message I took away is actually how much CPU and how memory 
much memory something takes up is actually irrelevant. Most people don't care about it. What they care about is how it responds and how responsive it seems. Because I, I, have, I have looked at Eclipse, which isn't particularly popular anymore and is seen as being big and heavyweight and slow. And I've looked at um, how, much, how much memory it takes and how much CPU takes. And I've compared it with things like Atom and VS Code. And it, it's not using significantly more. In fact, in some cases, it uses a lot less of those, those yeah. measurements. Yeah. But it, it doesn't feel as responsive. And it feels like it gets away in the user experience in a way that Atom and VS Code don't. And and that was kind of, a, for me, it was a big change in how I thought about these things because it's not important, you know, to developers, it's not so much important as to how much memory and how much t time it takes. What's important is how responsive it feels. So if you can use a little, if you're using more memory and more CPU, but you're delivering a really responsive experience for development that's the important thing because that responsiveness to the developer needs is what delivers the good uh the productivity boosts that people are looking for yeah and uh what what's I mean, uh, what's also important in in case of open liberty is the new fresh design open liberty the page is great the guide so i mean everything is done right the next problem we get is of course is uh fashion right so uh the, the whole it industry is is fashion driven so um i remember last year end of last year i was in an, in a kind of architecture workshop in a client and they asked me why i'm still no propagating the uh gms the legacy gms and and not using kafka and then i say okay this is completely different you know architectural approaches so kafka is more like a database and gms is like Uh, communication, me, transactional communication protocol. This is uh, less about per, uh, per persistence and more about communication. And Kafka is uh, less about communication and more about persistence. And they say, yeah, but Kafka is more modern. And and um, and then I and then I say, if we really introduce Kafka, we probably won't eliminate GMS. We will el eliminate your databases. And they say, why? And this will end up being another workshop. But uh, this is the problem. The developers picking you know, off at the conference what Netflix is is doing or or Google on Facebook and try you know to replicate that in in a m more trivial applications. And 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 if you if you look at Java E or or, or MicroProfile, it's actually boring what we are doing. Everything is solved. You know the GMS just works. There's nothing else to configure, nothing else to experiment. It just works, and this makes some developers boring. What I find out is um, startups like that because, you know, they like solve problems. They like to focus on business logic and not fiddling with our technology. Yeah. And, you know, and, and I think, you know, it's, it, I think it's definitely true that there's a certain kind of trend towards, uh, you know, it's like a fashion trend in the, in the IT industry. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I remember when web services first came out, people were kind of, some people dismissively, it was like, oh, it's just, It's just it's just Corba over HTTP and uh, and uh, and and uh, in XML and then when REST came out, oh, it's just web services but with JSON. And, you know, it's like it, it's very easy to be kind of dismissive, both forward and backward, without necessarily 
um, understanding why things were the way they were and what their strengths and weaknesses were. It, it's it's kind of interesting because I, I was at Dead Nexus two weeks ago and there was a panel on like the future of Java and it was, it was less about the future of Java itself and more about kind of um, people, younger people and getting them interested in Java and why it was perceived that they weren't. And it, 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 for me, it was kind of interesting because, uh, um, somebody, um, I can't remember who it was, um, pointed out that, um, you know, if you look at the kind of the, the hot, hot, hot languages, um, in terms of usage, JavaScript, Java and Python are kind of the top three and they're all around the same age. Um, but there's this perception that JavaScript and Python are, are much younger. Um, and Java is somehow this kind of really old language. And, but in fact, Python, I think is like two or three years older than Java and yeah, exactly. JavaScript mm-hmm. and Java are about the same vintage. So in fact, it's kind of ironically that the reason JavaScript is, has Java in the name was an attempt to kind of ride on the coattails of Java's initial, um, popularity. Exactly. Um, and you know, it, it's like, well, Python is exciting because AI is exciting. Um, it's actually not the, the problem thing is, isn't around this, you know, Java is boring. It's because the pe- thing, problems people use Java to solve are less interesting than the problems people use Java, JavaScript or Python to solve. Yeah. But, um, I don't know. You remember probably Scala. And at one point, uh, Scala had, uh, XML DSL support. I think yeah. it was called XML Builder or something. This was around 2000, probably six or seven. And Java was told, you know, to be to be dead because Java does not support DSL uh, XML natively without parser, like understanding natively the XML syntax. I remember the, the whole entire discussion back then, and and for me it was like strange. I was like, why we need to know so much XML? I mean, you could do also without the XML, and and, and this was a very good decision, you know, to not support XML natively in Java. Just imagine that. I, th- I think if we had now um, native support, uh, language support for XML in Java, this would be, I mean, terrible. So th- now with Java nine, I... less so because it would be somehow deprecated. But this would, you know, damage Java seriously over the years. Yeah, and I mean, with Liberty, um, I remember a few years after we shipped it, we we went out with an XML format because, you know, I think even now enough people can read and write XML. It's a a known enough quantity, but it's a reasonable format. And then somebody came and said, oh, we should rewrite it all in JSON uh, because JSON was the kind of flavor of the day and people were starting to use for JSON in areas where, to be honest, in retrospect, it was inappropriate. And I was like, no, I don't think we should do JSON. We should just hold off and see how things go on. And, you know, it, it, it disappeared and nobody uses JSON anymore because YAML is the flavor of the day. Yeah. But don't and, please don't do YAML. So I think XML is perfect for configuration. So I uh, YAML is like um, I have to I have to admit what I do. I write JSON code usually and then let convert them to YAML because uh, now I know somehow how to write YAML straight. But it's really hard. I I don't think I can do it just you know uh, without a mistake. Yeah, it's. I mean, for me, it's like I I don't. One of the things I don't like about Python is the fact that white space is significant and you it's hard to tell the difference between visually between tabs and spaces mm-hmm. uh, but it can have a meaning and semantic flow and it's the same with yaml it's like white space which is an invisible character can have a big effect mm-hmm. so 
I, and I, you know, I, I've read, you know, I read on Twitter, there's a lot of people who kind of don't like YAML, but you know, if I don't think, I don't, I, I, I the reason I think YAML is different is just because there's a whole generation of people who feel that YAML is natural. And if you look at kind of, uh, a lot of the, the modern, modern production environments, you know, Kubernetes understands it natively. Um, so I, I, I think that one is worth a bit more consideration than say Jason was. I think yeah, it's of course, got a little but, bit. But Kubernetes yeah. supports both natively and, uh, and YAML, I think, um, is there because if you are Kubernetes, how call it not operator rather than admin if you deal with uh, devops that how to call it devopian <laughs> if you are how to call it you know someone who is a de in the devops role there is not a developer it's a dev developer probably if you yeah. are a developer and you care about kubernetes it's really easy to 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 read you know the yaml stuff it is very readable but it's, it's harder yeah. to write i, I would argue mm -hmm. i I, I absolutely agree. I mean, there's lots of challenges around YAML for authoring um, and, and correctness validation. Mm -hmm. um, and from that perspective, I think XML is still superior. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, as, as I said earlier, there's a certain fashion element to thing. And I think YAML at the moment is slightly beyond that. It's just a fashion that will go. I think it's going to be irrespective of whether or not we might think that XML is better or, than it for certain use cases. I think YAML for configuration is going to continue to be around for some time. Yeah, I also think so. But uh, yeah, and um, I forgot to ask you what what is your uh, your task right now? So you you are still involved with Open Liberty, I would assume. So what are you doing right now? What are your your tasks or your goals? Um, that's an interesting question. Um, so. I'm my my responsibility is for the overall architecture of um, and delivery of uh, technical delivery of both Liberty and WebSphere. So I kind of okay. have mm -hmm. um, a foot in both camps. Um, I I used to have I used to have an excuse to ignore the other camp, which has gone away now. You know, my most of my time, to be honest, is either spent in a supporting uh the the team working on kind of liberty to make sure that what we deliver um is is kind of complete mm -hmm. um and um and, and uh as opposed to kind of dedic dedicating my time to writing code so um it's it's been a it's it's a very different experience for me because it's 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 most of my time is spent on kind of meetings and design reviews and um, requirements reviews and less on code but I really try very hard to make sure I still do write write code and deliver function because I think if you're going to claim to be an architect for something like Liberty and you don't understand how to add new function and how to deliver it and how to get it through the process it's just it's never going to it's never going to, um, it's, you're never going to really understand what people are doing. So your input into the designs and the development process is, is not, it's not as valid as it could be. Yeah. Um, so you miss coding. So I, oh, I, I, I miss coding. Um, yeah. I, I miss coding. But the, the problem with, the problem with coding is to be good at coding, you need to have a big dedicated time. You can't task switch to and from it. And that's the problem that I have right now is, uh, I, there are a load of things that I would love to do in terms of, um, uh, code for, uh, for Liberty. And I, 
I just don't have the time to dedicate to making sure that they would be delivered. So I've been tending to focus on more things around the periphery um, in general. Um, and I've done some prototyping um, stuff that then, you know, somebody else takes and actually gets delivered. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to remember what the last uh, the last thing I did was. Um, but uh, and my mind is drawing a complete blank. Oh, um, after one one hour discussion with me, right? <laughs> <laughs> but um, samples might be a good thing, right? So you could just you know write a lot of samples and and push in GitHub's how to use Open Liberty. I mean, this is fun. Then you yeah. have not a lot of so, context switching, and actually, and you get another perspective from the from the user, right? Yeah, and you know, one of the things when we when we open source Liberty in two thousand and seventeen, um, we actually held up open sourcing it because I wanted to get a good set of guides on how to deliver and and, and write them, and I wrote the first the first uh, the first guide that we had that was kind of uh, the example by which all of the other guides followed, and. Um, you know, I'm fairly certain if I went and looked at it now, it would be completely unrecognizable from the guide that I, I wrote back then because it was the first one. Um, but that's an example of something that, you know, it's not core runtime stuff, but it is still technical and it still does help people because it helps people understand how to uh, make use of, uh, of of the product. Hi, cool. Um, uh, one, uh, also um, one, one important question. Why naughty code? on Twitter? What what does it mean? So originally I, I had a, uh, so I can't remember what, I can't remember my first Twitter handle. Um, it was a long time ago, but I, I changed it. At some, so I, when I, when I was in the UK, when I went to the UK, I had an email address of not at uk.ibm.com, which I thought was kind of funny because it was a play on my last name of Nottingham. Ah. Um, but it also said I wasn't there. And uh, I, I ended up, using that for a Twitter handle of not at IBM. And um, when I changed it to that, somebody thought I was announcing my resignation, ah. um, <laughs> which was, which was kind of, <laughs> kind of funny. Um, but I had that for a long time, but technically you're not allowed to have IBM in your, um, in your Twitter handle. Mm-hmm. Uh, so at some point um, in the last few years, somebody said, you know, you probably should rename it before you leave IBM. Um, and they weren't an IBM person. It was at a conference and they said, you should get rid of it and you should get rid of it before you even think that maybe you want, might want to, to leave IBM because you don't want to lose your following as a result. So I, I, I spent some time trying to think about what I could do. And my, my brother's Twitter handle is Tommy Notty. Uh-huh. His first name. Um, I don't know. I, I, I don't know why because he doesn't go by Tom. Um, maybe it wasn't Tommy Notty. Anyway, so he used Notty as his last name. Ah. So uh, I thought um, he used Notty for the last name. So I thought, well, what could I use? And I went through permutations. Then Notty code came up. Okay. And and what I thought um, was after experience uh, to to interacting with you per email, I thought probably this Notty code is because you say a lot not, you know, no, <laughs> like no say a code. <laughs> You know, this was my, I was like, okay, so probably, yeah, probably uh, you so, are. So the reason, yeah, the, the original reason is in English, um, uh, if a knot, as in um, something you use to join two ropes together, mm-hmm. um, has a silent K, but it's a K-N-O-T. So yeah. knotty would be, if you have knotty string, it would be K-N-O-T-T-Y. So I just removed the K. Yeah. And, and, um, and I read, I always said, 
I, I ask you know, Erin, who is the guy who is not? I, I just I just remember this not, you know. And she's yeah. and naughty, probably. And just I look up Twitter, yeah, this is the guy. I said, okay. But I just remember the not. At not, and then for, probably your email, not at IBM. This is what I saw the first yeah. time. This, yeah, this could I'm, be. I'm, and Yeah, this could be. Because I always, you know, I, I associated you with not. Just not. This naughty code yes. came later. Mm -hmm. So the Slack community, the Java EE workgroups um, Slack community that um, was set up, um, I, my, my short form is NOT on that. Um, but um, here's a hint, never ever have a, a commonly used English word on something like Slack as yeah. your short name, because anytime somebody just says it, you get pinged for a notification. It's just, yeah. yeah. So perfect, Alastair. So I would say we conclude our conversation where people can find you on the internet with uh, you know, your naughty code of obviously your Twitter. Do you have a blog or, or a web page? Um I, I I I'm not going to admit to my web page because it's really out of date. Um uh I, I'm on LinkedIn and I'm on Twitter. I'm mostly on Twitter to be honest. Okay. So at naughty code, of course. Yeah. So thank you. Um And and it turns out my brother's Twitter account, in case anyone wants to follow my brother, is David Notty. David so Notty. So that, that's okay. the link. Okay. Da David Notty. And this is the game designer at Riot, right? Yes. Perfect. Yeah. So thank you. And, and ironically, my, my younger sister works in software sales, working for Tipco. So we're all in technology. And Tipco is somehow also JMS related, right? Yes. <laughs> okay. Thank you a lot. Bye. Thank you.